Hey everybody, welcome to Gun Freedom Radio. I am your host, Cheryl Todd, and I am here today to interview and get to know a little bit better Adam Wilson. Welcome to the show, Adam. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So Adam and I have known each other through the the Facebook, right? And the webs. And it's such a powerful tool to get to meet people that you might otherwise never have had a chance to know. And I'm, I'm so fortunate and so blessed to have met him. Now, Adam was once a homeless high school dropout. Now, wait till you hear how accomplished this person has become in his life. From a, a start like that into his adult life, he is now a highly decorated 14-year law enforcement veteran who was recognized in 2018 by the National Association of Police Organizations that sponsors the annual Top Cop Awards for producing the top investigation in North Carolina. And in addition to all of this, he is also the author of a book, Tactical Reload, Strategy Shifts for Emerging Leaders in Law Enforcement. Holy cow, that is quite the journey, Adam. It has been, you're right. Hold up that book for us to see, for the people watching the video, the, the people listening online. Shameless. Shameless plug here. So you Shameless can find plug. The, the shield, the red and black and white. That's kind of my, my colors there. I but uh, but yeah, that's it. Tactical Reload. So I have not had a chance to read it yet, but I did order my copy yesterday from right. Amazon.com. By the that's way, it. everybody can get their own copy. <laughs> I saw that there's an audible version. Did yes. you voice I did. That? I did. Yeah. That is my favorite way to read books these days. So I'm... Um, I'm probably going to have you in my too. It's so hard doing an audio. I thought I could read <laughs> before. I thought I was a good reader before right. I got in the booth and had to read into a microphone for several hours at a time. Your, your lips go numb because you're reading out loud. You're not reading in your brain and it is much harder, much harder than I ever thought it was going to take. I, I completely hear you and feel you because, uh, I usually write most of the copy for this show and then I hand the paper off to my co-host, my husband, Dan, and he, brilliant man, he, he's fine until he's trying to read something out loud and then right. it's like foreign. <laughs> yes. I felt bad for the engineer that had to go and, uh, and clean up all the mistakes. It was terrible, <laughs> but I did. And you know, it was, it was a lot of fun. I wanted that experience and, and the publishers, if anybody out there is ever interested in writing a book, they really want the author if they can yes. do the reading because they know kind of, they know where to put those inflections and yes. where to put the emotion behind the words at. And, and as a consumer, I like to hear the voice of the person who, who wrote it and experienced the thing. So right. I'm, yeah. that's two bucket list things for me. I still want to write and I want to, uh, if it's, if I don't voice my own book, I, I want to voice a book. I think that you, would... you got a great, I think you do fantastic at it. I think you got a great voice, very articulate and, and not to get the sound. This may sound kind of morbid to some people, but you know, I'm in a profession where, you know, things happen to people and, and people lose their lives. And so I thought, you know, if I did an audio book, you mm -hmm. know, it would be a neat thing to leave behind sure. if something ever happened to me, to my family and friends that they could go back and, you know, you know, play me in the car. 
Absolutely. Yeah. I love that, actually. Uh, but it's going to be a long, long, long time from now before that happens. Knocking on wood. Right. So let's kind of rewind a little bit and, and talk about, well, where did this book come from? Where did the idea for it come from? Uh, what is it really about? Sure. And that has been the million dollar questions is why did I write the book? And I really do wish, I wish I had a singular answer that just blew people's hair back. And it was just a very easy answer. But in all honesty, it's, it's kind of multifaceted. And so I found myself talking to a lot of the rookies, a lot of our new hires. At the, I'm a, obviously I'm a police officer. And so I, would, I was given pieces of advice and things I wish people would have told me at the start of my career. And so, but I felt like I always left something out. So I'd go home and I started to jot stuff down to be like, hey, I, I need to remember that. That was, that was gold. And so I would write stuff down and it kind of, it, it, it became more and more and it kind of became therapeutic in a way. And the more I wrote, the more I felt like I maybe had something. And so, so there was, it was that angle. And I talk a lot about influence and positive influence and uh, the, the effects it has on, on your family and friends and how negativity can creep into your life and just becomes a, a, a cancer. And I thought, you know, this, is a, this would be a good way to bring some, some positive influence to a profession that just gets beaten down all the time. Yeah. And so there was that aspect. And then, and to be honest, completely honest, there was a, there was a selfish aspect too that. I just wanted to, I wanted to write a book and achieve a goal. And it was one of those bucket list things. I thought, you know what, I'm just going to, and I'm going to put it out there. And I can honestly say it's probably been the most vulnerable thing that I've ever done because it's one thing to say, Hey, yeah, I'm going to write a book, but you actually put your thoughts on paper and your ideas on paper is, is very scary because you don't know how it's going to be received. Mm -hmm. You don't know if it's going to be a joke. You don't know. You don't know what people are going to think. Mm -hmm. But once, so Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman, a beloved person across the country in law enforcement. I know he's been on the show. Mm -hmm. uh, I asked him if he'd be interested in writing the Ford. And just like any professional, he's not going to stamp his name on something until he reads it. Well, he reads it and he calls me. He's like, hey, man, I think you got something. So I was like, wow. Okay. So if, if Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman is saying that, hey, it's legitimate, then I'll, I'm going to take his word for it. But he was one of the first ones outside of my, my family and friends. You know, I, my mom's going to tell me anything I write is good, right? Sure. But, yeah. but when Dave Grossman says it's good and that, he's, that he will write the forward, which he ended up doing, you know, that's when I thought, well, I have something here. And so Absolutely. selfishness, influence, and and it kind of, I wanted to get those pieces of advice out there, especially to the new guys and, and girls out there getting into law enforcement. That was kind of my trifecta of, of that all came together to really push me to write the book. That's awesome. So I understand that feeling of, you know, vulnerability and like exposing parts of yourself um, in the written word. And now it's forever. Like it's out sure. there, right? It's out there. Yeah. So how much of your personal life, the fact that you were a high school dropout, uh, homeless for a while, how much of that is actually like written in the book and how much of that is just lessons you learned from, from being in 
you know, going through the journey that you went through? Sure. I, I like using my story as a, you know, it's not that I have, I don't have an original story. I guess everybody kind of does, but you know, it's a very kind of pick you up by your, by the bootstraps type of story, completely American, right? Millions of people have had stories like mine where, you know, there's, there's a level of perseverance that they had to overcome. And so, but I thought for people interested in me, police, I think there is a misperception a lot of times that you have to have a squeaky clean background. You have to have perfect credit. You have to have had, you know, no, just no past with any kind of, uh, you know, uh, road humps in it. And, and it's just not the case. And so I wanted to use my story to, to show like, Hey, look, if I can do it, then you can do it. Now, mm-hmm. some may have an easier time than others, mm-hmm. but with hard, hard work works. Mm-hmm. If you're willing, if you're willing to put in the time every day and work hard, you can literally do anything that you want to do. We live in the greatest country in the world. I honestly, God believe that that is full of opportunities. It just depends on how hard you want to work to take advantage of those opportunities. So no matter what your place is that you can always overcome it and then still achieve a goal. Now, now granted in, in the police world, you can't come in with, you know, out of prison and with a bunch of felonies, you know, snorting cocaine saying, I want to be a cop. That's not going to work, but you know, you don't have to have some graduate degree. You don't have to have, you know, you don't have to have, you know, if you've been suspended, if you've been in trouble before, if you've gotten some tickets, if you've got a DWI, you know, a certain amount of years back, those things to me, I like seeing people come into the profession that has been punched in the face, mm. eating it, mm. and then come and then gotten back after it. I, what I don't like, and I see it a lot. I'm not going to say I don't like it because there's, there's nothing wrong with it. But one trend I see a lot is kids get out of high school. They've had a perfect, they've had a perfect life, you know, got in a car at 16, you know, went to the, went to the prom, done, done all the things kids are supposed to do, went to a four year university graduated and now they want to be the police and that's fine, but they've never, they've never really experienced that much life yet. And you're giving them a boatload of, of, of responsibility. Mm. That's one. And one reason I love getting military guys in is because, Hey, they, they have, they have done not that graduating college isn't a significant accomplishment. It Mm. certainly takes some, some grit and some fortitude, Mm. but being in the military really gives you discipline it, it, you learn, you, you learn rank structure, responsibility. And, uh, and I think those things are important. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times, but you get these kids come in and all of a sudden they have, they got that badge on and you know, it's, uh, uh, they think they're, they think they're big time. They think they're tough. Mm-hmm. And so <clears throat> sometimes you got to break it down for the kids that, you know, you're not a tough guy. You're, mm-hmm. you, you've had a great life. You're getting ready to go into these, these neighborhoods that, where some of these people don't know anything but severe poverty. Mm-hmm. They're, they're fighting every day. They're mm-hmm. selling drugs. They, all they know is violence. They don't have anything else. And some of these kids have never been punched in the face before. Now mm-hmm. they're the police and they got to go deal with these people. Mm-hmm. And so the begin, my story kind of going, circling back around my story was just to show like, Hey, look, these are the issues that I had growing up. I didn't have a perfect background. You know, and all of it was, was self-induced. My parents were great, but I was, it was, it was stupid Adam being young, um, trying to be too independent and you know, it, I was able to overcome it. So if I can do it, you can do it too. 
That's awesome. That's uh, so important. All of those things, um, understand, being able to understand the world from another person's perspective and experience, I feel like we're, we're losing that. Like we're getting, you would think in the, the world where, you know, you can peek into people's lives on social media 24 hours a day, seven yes. days a week, you would think that we would start to be uh, better able to, you know, wear someone else's shoes, you know, think, think about someone else's life. It feels like we're, we're falling farther away from that uh, right. for whatever reasons. And that would be for a sociologist to probably help break us down, <laughs> break it down. But, um, but I think uh, that's kind of what I'm hearing you saying is that, you know, that whole having been punched in the face yourself, it gives you some idea, you know, if somebody is selling drugs, it may not be because they're just really, they want to be part of this underworld. It's their only option, maybe in their minds, maybe not in reality, be in their minds. That's their only option to um, keep food on the table for their family. So that's, that's really interesting. Um, And so you, Talk about coming into law enforcement without necessarily the squeakiest, cleanest, you know, background with the good credit and all that stuff. <laughs> yeah. You also had a, a physical uh, challenge to uh, coming in on the force that not everybody would have had. So talk to us about what that was. So aside from being five foot six uh, and being a challenge in itself with height. So I grew up whenever I was a baby. I grew up with only only having one kidney. So whenever I was born, there was a blockage in my kidney and in my bladder, and they had to remove a kidney and part of my bladder. Now, in 1982, which is when I was born, renal care wasn't where it's at today. Now they, they potentially could have saved the kidney and, you know, uh, worked their magic and, and everything would have been fine. But back then, they really didn't know how sick I was or wasn't. And so I was everything to me was for me was through a lens of caution. The, the doctor told my parents that he was nervous about me riding a bike because if I fell off and fell on a rock, I could lose the other kidney. Mm. So I, I was never able to play sports growing up, which I think is super, super important for kids, especially learning those life lessons and building character and, and, and discipline and, and having some, having somebody be hard on you. I'd never, I didn't have that. And, but I wanted that so bad, not necessarily the discipline, but I just wanted to be a part of a team and, and play sports and, and be a normal kid. And I just, I never had that growing up. And so, and, and honestly, the first time I was ever really on a team, aside from being a part of the team of a, of a, uh, you know, at Chili's or, or at the police department, my first team team was the SWAT team at the police department. And so I think, so I don't know if I looked at it, you know, a little more, you know, gratifying than some of the other guys did that maybe grew up playing basketball and football. I feel like all those guys on the team are all uh, alpha male type personalities that played high school football and wrestled and, and played sports in college. And that's all they kind of knew. But it, and then there was me, you know, the little uh, five, five foot six kid with one kidney, you know, trying to shoot a gun. And so here I came, but that was probably my first experience. And that just kind of made, that gave me, that just built more on the passion for law enforcement in general, because that, that kind of satisfied, that kind of quenched that thirst for me in a way. 
that, and so that made me, you know, so as soon as I was on the team, it was, man, I loved it. Still love it. Uh, I'm not on the team anymore. Unfortunately, I had to come off once I got promoted. There was just too many sergeants on the team. And so just a completely logistical thing. And now I'm on another team. But, uh, but yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. And, and it, was, uh, it was something that was, that was really important to me for a while. Wow. So when I'm hearing your story and I'm thinking about, you know, kind of where you brought yourself through, I love stories like that. Those whole bootstrap stories, like you were saying, um, you know, kind of that can do spirit and not letting your, your past determine your future 100%. sort of thing. I, I just love those kinds of stories. And I'm hearing also like resourcefulness because, you know, when you were homeless, um, you know, what, what did that look like for you? Were you like on the sidewalk? Like, uh, that's what a lot of people think when they, when they hear that, when you, when you first hear, you know, homeless, you think, well, man, you must've been sleeping under a, uh, you know, sleeping next to a trash can under a bridge somewhere. And that, that's not what it was. You know, I left home fairly early and I was just kind of couch to couch for a while. Uh, people would take me in you know, empathetic parents or whoever would just let me come sleep on the couch a few nights and then I'd move along. The, uh, I, the, there, there's a, the famous trailer story is we move into a trailer, <laughs> me and a couple guys that were kind of in the same predicament that I was in, but the trailer didn't have any power, didn't have any furniture. And then it didn't even have working sewage. Everything just ran into the yard. And so completely disgusting. <laughs> I think we even had a party there for God. It was in, it was so well, of stupid. course you did, right? Like, it wasn't nothing to break, right? You know, right. use the bathroom, go in the yard. The, uh, <laughs> and so, but we ended up getting a lamp. I remember that, and it was hooked up to a generator. And I remember just having a pile of clothes on the floor and just kind of use that as a bed sometimes. And it sounds, it probably makes my family cringe now thinking about it, but, and I was too prideful and stupid to just, you know, tuck my tail and go back home. So I just kind of kept jumping around from place to place. And as, as bad as it sounds though, like I, I don't think that I would change anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, because I think going through those things made me so resilient now mm-hmm. that like, there's not a lot that you can throw at me that I haven't been through or it's not as bad as it's been. Mm. You know, I remember working at the, so I would work at this movie theater during this time and we had to wear these little bow ties and vests and I was an usher and making popcorn. But I remember, so these, the big drinks that would come in these huge bags. And I remember the, the leftover popcorn I would take and just fill it up and I would tie it off and I would march out to the car and that would be my dinner for that night back at the trailer with no power or furniture. <laughs> and so it sounds terrible. And I swore forever that I would never eat freaking popcorn again. I was like, <laughs> I will never, I, I am so sick of popcorn and, but I, I did eventually come, go back to eating popcorn. I now have my Sunday night ritual with my HBO shows with, with my popcorn as a snack. But, uh, but, you know, but I think about those times, I was thinking, you know, there's no way I would ever trade that because the lessons I learned in those moments taught me so much that I know now. And because what it did really, and I talk a lot about influence, but the chip that it put on my shoulder to be successful. It, that is what sparked my work ethic at mm-hmm. its core. 
Mm-hmm. There was a couple moments whenever I was younger in, in, in seventh grade. And I'll tell you a quick story. And I'm actually trying to sell this as a, as a TED talk about, about influence. But in seventh grade, they, I remember going into an auditorium and it was a basic auditorium. You know, you got the old wooden seats at, at a junior high, middle school, and you got the old tattered curtains and the old stage for theater stuff. And they, they put us all in three different groups. One group was college prep. Those were, those were the popular kids that were going to be going straight to a college. Then this group in the middle were the college tech prep. These were the kids that were going to go to a two-year school out of high school. Maybe they go to a college. Maybe they go into the workforce. But that was the kids that were kind of middle-of-the-road grades, A-B students, but not, you know, not like the, the really smart kids. And then there was my group. And my group was the trade group. And I remember them telling us that college probably isn't your thing. You're, you need to learn a trade or some type of skill that's, that you're going to be able to, to work with as an adult. And they, were, and they were telling us this, like, hey, you need to start doing this now because you're going to graduate high school soon, and then you're going to be basically working the rest of your life. And I remember looking around thinking, well, if that's the case, the only reason most of these kids are going to continue to do well in school is to eventually go to college. So why am I even bothering? I, I remember like, and then they told me that they were not, not going to pass me along to the eighth grade, ninth grade, that I was going to go regardless. You know, I don't know if it was a child left behind thing at the time, but they're, I'm moving on. And so I was just like, well, what the hell? Like, what am I even like? I'm not wasting my time with homework. And that kind of compounded year after year and you know moving on to eighth to the 11th grade that's when I officially quit school and became a high school dropout and why that's important is well one is the level of influence that it had on the trajectory of my life at that time because here's an educator that is I'm told my whole life to trust listen to they know best why would a 13 year old not listen to this person that's telling me you're not going to go to college. Mm-hmm. You need to go find you a meal job somewhere, which is a very feasible thing at the time because my hometown in Gastonia, North Carolina is a very textile rich environment is mm-hmm. there's meals all over the place. And so I just kind of quit trying. It wasn't that I was stupid. It was just like, well, why waste my time? Obviously I'm not going to college. This person said so. Yeah. And then the, in the 11th grade, I remember they said, look, you're going to have to quit school. And I was like, Oh, Hey, give me the paperwork because I had, <laughs> because I had missed so many days. They said, if you, if you don't quit, you're going to take all F's and you will never ever graduate with your class. So I was like, okay, so let's go back to this dropping out thing. How is that going to help? They said, well, you can take incompletes if you drop out and then you can go to summer school and do something. It'll be a miracle, but you would be able to come back and graduate with your class. Mm-hmm. And, and that time I was like, I'm not gonna say I was one of the popular kids, but you know, I, 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 I hung out with a lot of the kids that were considered popular and I didn't want to be a high school dropout, but I was like, well, Hey, this person knows best, right? Professional educator. So mm-hmm. I dropped out. And so what I had to do, and I, and this was probably the first time I was ever really challenged is I went to summer school that year and got a couple credits. My senior year of high school, 
I would go to high school during the day. And then I would go to Gaston College, which is our local community college, from five to nine every day for the entire year. And it took, which was, it was tough. That was a hard, that was a, that was a hard year. But all that did was get me back to zero. Yeah. And so, cause I was in, I was in the negatives. Right. So it got me back to zero. But at that point I was all, I was considered, the, I was considered a dropout. You know, I was considered a, the dumb kid, the, the screw up, you know, and that was kind of like another, the seventh grade to that was two of the most influential things that happened to me. Mm-hmm. And as far as inf- like influence mm-hmm. and, but I wouldn't, I still wouldn't trade it because that, that's, that really put a chip on my shoulder because I wanted to prove to people that no, I'm, I'm not that person. And the older, more mature I got, I just found myself working harder and harder and harder to show them that I'm not a screw up because I remember I went to, so I went to NC state for a little while and I didn't get enough financial aid to come to stay. So I had to come back home. I didn't have, I was working a full-time job up there, but I still couldn't afford the tuition and everything. And I, I really didn't have a support system back home to just give me money. Mm-hmm. So I come back home and I was just, I remember having a conversation with a friend of mine and I was just like, yeah, I just didn't have the money to stay. And they were like, yeah, okay. Like, sure you didn't. You just, you flunked out. And I was like, no, actually I was going pretty good. But that was the, that was my, that was my perception. Yeah. You know, like, of course Adam quits state or what he, he quits everything. Right. And so like that eat at me and eat at me and eat at me. And I was, you know, and that was one of the reasons I was going to try to go for my PhD <laughs> but that's an expensive point to prove, you know, yeah. that, you know, and so I was just like, well, and, uh, but yeah. And so all that kind of, and at, at that moment I put in my head, if feasibly I will never ever quit anything else I ever start again. Mm-hmm. And it, even with the book, even when I was like, I don't feel like writing that in the back of my mind was like, Nope, push forward, always push forward. Even slow progress is still progress. Absolutely. And yeah, so hard work works. I love that. Your uh, parents, I'd love to talk to them because there was probably times that they were like, what did we do? And what he's living in a, they're peeing in the yard, right? Like they had now, if they could just, you know, if they were just had that crystal ball, they could have just seen, no, all of this is actually going to make him. It's going to be, it's going to work out in the end. And I was very nervous about that too, about writing the book because I didn't want to paint anybody in a bad light because sure. they did, they didn't know what the hell they got themselves into whenever I came along. They really didn't. Uh, Parenthood. It, it was parent. Not just a I job, was, it's an adventure. Right, because I was not scared to be like, I'm out, I'll go, I'll go wherever. And, and at some point, like you can only do so much as a parent. And yeah. even looking back now, you think, I think, man, you know, they would have been completely justified and just knocking me out several times. But, uh, but they were, but they were great parents. It's just, I was just such a knucklehead and, you know, God has plans for everybody, yeah. you know, and I don't know if that was just part of his plan. Yeah. You know, I feel bad for them if it was part, if it was my plan to put them through torment, <laughs> but, uh, <sighs> but, uh, yeah. So, but it's, it's great now. And I, and I did my best not to try to paint them in a bad light in the book. And I really hope I didn't. I just, I just felt like that story was, had a little bit of value and maybe there's somebody else in a similar situation out there like yeah. myself that thought that thinks maybe, uh, you know, maybe I can, after hearing that, maybe I can be a cop or maybe I can be a fireman. You know, and are you a parent now? No, just, just to rescue dogs and a, and a rescue cat. 
So your parents were probably, you know, spending all their time just praying that you would be a parent at some point. I'm sure. (laughs) I know what I did. And if it was going to come, like, if I have a kid now, it would be the devil reincarnated probably. And I don't know if I can deal. I don't know if I can deal with that. So, but yeah, no, me and my wife, we have not, we decided uh, that we're not going to have kids right now. And again, completely selfish reasons. Yeah. I mean, honestly, we like getting up when we want. We like, uh, we like doing what we want to do. And we're, we're godparents to several kids that we love. And, you know, it's not that, and I always feel bad saying that, but because I, th- if, you know, if it happened, that'd be great. But it's it's just not something that that we want to do right now. Maybe in the future we might. And and everybody tells me, you know, it's great. You know, when they're yours, it's great and it's and it's wonderful. And I'm just like, look, you've slept three hours this week. Like, that sounds terrible. <laughs> You're just saying that because you have to say that now. Misery but, uh, loves company. Okay. <laughs> and no, so, but I, I and I'm and I'm kidding. But uh, <laughs> and, but so so one so one day we might do it. But right now we just like. We like doing our own thing. And I got so much other crap going on. I don't know where I'd find the time. Absolutely. Well, if you ever do, your parents are going to get some popcorn and they're going to be like this. They're going to be like, oh, let's sure. watch this play out, right? I, I, I guarantee it. <laughs> oh, I love that. Uh, well, one of the things that we um, talked about off the air, just to kind of put a bow on all of that is, I love that you said that um, you found you have found success through failures and mm. that it's important not to be afraid of embarrassment. Yes. That is something that, especially I think with the social media world that we live in, that, you know, in some ways people are embarrassing themselves all over the place because they don't realize that something they post when they're, you know, super emotional about something really angry or whatever, mm that can come back to haunt them later in life, if not immediately. Um, So I don't mean that kind of thing, but um, we're in that social media world. Sometimes we, we want to live these fake lives. We want to always, you know, look like we're um, constantly happy or constantly, you know, and that there is so much value to yourself and for other people I mean, your story it would be a great story. I mean, the top cop award and all that stuff. It's a great story anyway. Mm-hmm. But then when you get to hear the gritty beginnings, right, that you chose for yourself, right? Like yeah, all of those things, that, that's the stuff that really touches people because they, they do get to come away with, okay, so even at my lowest moment, I... I have this example in Adam or whoever that they, they were able to come through it. And I think that that is so important. Um, and I really appreciate you for being so transparent and vulnerable in that way. And I, and the thing is really, I knew if I wasn't, I think people come off as being insincere and you can see through that a lot of times. And so, especially on social media, of course you only, everybody only posts the good stuff, right? And so everybody wants to seem like their lives are so perfect and everybody's lives aren't nearly as perfect as they appear to be on social media. But it was really important to me to be honest because that's kind of one of my leadership principles that, and that I try to, I try to teach people and live by myself. And so if I'm not willing to, to, you know, heed my own advice and, you know, actions speak louder than words. So if I'm not willing to do it, 
why would anybody ever believe me whenever I'm trying to tell them to be authentic and be themselves and don't be this fake person. If I'm, you know, coming across as a fake person or writing from a, from a fake perspective, it's just, it's just not gonna, it's just not gonna be received well. No, absolutely. Um, you know, the best stories are those that, that take us through the arc of, you know, a struggle of some sort. And, um, a friend asked me about a year ago, somebody that's just really caught fire in the second amendment community and really, you know, uh, made some, some big, huge progress in a short amount of time, but not without, you know, the bumps in the road asked me, do you think that super successful people knew they were going to be successful all along? And I, I said, well, I don't know if I, where you would put somebody like me on that, that spectrum of successful, but my personal experience and talking to people who I think are super successful, if someone says that to you, they are lying. They are absolutely lying because we don't know what bumps are going to come in the road and what obstacles are going to come along. We, we have an idea, we have a goal. We, you know, like you said, you had this chip on your shoulder that was, you know, the gas in your engine pushing you forward. Um, so you've got to believe that it's possible to be mm-hmm. successful. But, uh, you know, the people that are hugely successful, if they are not sharing those parts of their life, I think they're, I think that's selfish. And I think that they're doing a disservice. I, I agree 100%. I was just getting ready to say that if they're, if they take that approach, they're doing the, they're doing a disservice to everyone else. Mm-hmm, absolutely. All right. So, um, you know, you talked about the, the challenges of the career that you've chosen. Mm-hmm. Um, but in just the last decade and a half, not even quite two decades, maybe there have been some really, I would say from, from somebody who's not in law enforcement looking into the people in your career field, there are more significant challenges uh, almost every day, it feels like. Yes. And you were talking off air about uh, Ferguson. Now, some mm-hmm. people might not immediately remember, well, what, what's Ferguson? What's my, my memory peg for Ferguson? But you talk about post-Ferguson effects on finding people who want to join your career field. Um, Talk to us a little bit about all of that. So Ferguson uh, is probably the, one of the biggest events that has really changed the landscape across the country, really across the world for policing. Uh, There were several things that happened in Ferguson that, you know, the, the, the whole, the whole mantra of hands up, don't shoot, was all a complete lie, but but by the time we're able to come out and say it was a lie, everybody's already moved on to something else. And so the police really, I think, are a – police are a – they're an easy target. We're an easy target. And what I mean is people know that they can come on TV, say whatever they want to say, and that typically we're going to take another road – we're not going to respond and get in some kind of, you know, debate or kind of some kind of argument. We're just going back and forth in circles. More commonly, we take the higher road. We take the, we take the more, you know, the more mature approach. But 
when we don't respond to some of that stuff, that's what the truth, that's what the perceived truth becomes. And so, and it's all about, so, and, and one of the most dangerous things I see is the perspectives that are built off these false narratives. Mm-hmm. So you have this false narrative of the hands up, don't shoot mantra, and it has changed people's perceptions. Hearing those false neg- narratives, no, no matter what the narrative is, they get these, these skewed perceptions, and then it alters their behavior moving forward. And so even still today, if we're dealing with somebody, we still hear that hands up, you know, don't shoot. And I'm just like, it's a lie. But by the time we were able to come out and say it's a lie, because there's an investigation that had to go, that we had to go through, nobody cares anymore because it's already become ingrained and another events already has already started. Mm-hmm. And so what we, I wish we could do better is figuring out a way to respond immediately to mm-hmm. certain things. Because when we don't, when we're completely silent, it really solidifies whatever that person is saying I've seen firsthand, you know, an activist come out and say something about a, about a, a officer involved shooting or scenario that was complete BS, but then the community gets behind them and that's the perceived truth. And I'm just like, man, we've got to say something sooner than later because by the time we're able to say something, mm-hmm. everybody's already moved on. Emotions aren't as high anymore. And so we don't do a good job about that. But Ferguson was really the, it really changed the landscape in terms of like virtue signaling and people wanting to feel like their act, their actions, their crimes were being justified by, because it, it made it seem like police and still are becoming dehumanized mm. while in, and at the same time we're, we're empowering the criminal element. Right. Because they will assault police now and they think it's coming from a, a place of, you know, morality and, you know, Hey, you know, I'm fighting back against this corrupt system and it's complete. No, you were selling crack. You were arrested for selling crack. Now you're going to jail. Now you're trying to justify your actions Mm -hmm. by off this moral high ground. That's complete BS. And like, I'm not taking you to jail, you know, for, for race, gender, for any of these, you know, any of these reasons that you may be spewing out, I'm taking you to jail because you, you committed a crime. Mm-hmm. You did this, you did that. And so it's just whenever people start justifying bad behavior of false narratives, that sets a very dangerous precedent and right. people, and people see this right. And they see the way people are behaving. They see that cops now are getting just, they're getting, they're, they're getting fired left and right for stuff they put on social media. There was a chief, that was not, he hadn't even gotten to the college yet of the police. He was going to be a chief. I can't remember right offhand. He was a, he had just gotten hired on at a college as a chief had not worked a single day yet. He liked a, a pro Trump tweet. He didn't say, he didn't say anything. He liked the tweet immediately suspended because the uproar of the student body. And it's just like, and I see stuff like that. I'm like, well, why would anybody at this point, you know, that's coming out of college or whatever, see this and think, man, I can't wait to go make my 30,000 a year and have to deal with this. Whenever I got, you know, the private sector over here, I can make that, you know, I can double that starting salary and not have to deal with all the, the, the stress of, of, of everything else I got to deal with. And so the staffing levels have dropped. And one of the, one of the things you got to deal with when that happens is, 
you know, we go from, if a business goes from, you know, 250 applicants to five, well, that those positions are no longer as competitive. So no offense to the officers getting hired now, because we got some phenomenal officers, but if we're not, we're not hiring the cream of the crop anymore, mm-hmm. you, you know what I'm saying? So if now, now the people that wouldn't have even gotten an interview mm-hmm. are now, now getting hired that maybe not shouldn't even be there in the first place. And it's just kind of, it's almost making, sometimes it can make issues even worse, but we got to have bodies. You know, we got to answer calls. We got to go to these wrecks. And so, but Ferguson is really the event that spurned that, that, that issue with staffing where people took a step back and was like, maybe this isn't my, maybe this isn't my cup of tea. And because they saw what happened with social media and, and the riots in general up there and, you know, how people retaliated uh, over a justified shooting. So as I was listening to you talk, I was drawing parallels to, so gun owners, right? So, you know, there are, I mean, I'm assuming that you would agree with this. I don't want to assume I'll ask you, there are people who have worn the the uniform and the badge who don't Mm -hmm. act appropriately. Absolutely. Okay. Does that mean that every single person who wears the uniform and the badge is there in order to act inappropriately? No. Right. So do certain, do some people misuse the tool, the firearm? Yes. Does that mean that all people that use the tool are bad? No. Does that mean the tool is bad? No. Uh, So I'm seeing a parallel there. And then when you talked about how, how small and how shallow the the pool of possible candidates to even be hired is shrinking. And then we pulled somebody out, this captain, don't know him. I didn't even know that story until you told me. But let's suppose that he was an extremely skilled person who was very community-minded. Like he was everything that anybody would ever pray someone who chooses that line of work would be you've Mm -hmm. pulled him out of that career field to be able to serve in the ways that he was going to serve because maybe, maybe he meant to like the thing. Maybe his thumb bumped it as he was scrolling. I mean, you don't even know. That's exactly right. And so when I talk about that, that shallowing of the pool of candidates, I think about politics I think about people that would be amazing public servants who are never going to put themselves through what people go through when they step into the political ring, right? Mm -hmm. Their life gets, you know, examined upon examined, uh, half truths and complete lies bubble to the surface and become the narrative. And so what do we get? We only get the people that either, you know, haven't ever lived a real life. So they have this squeaky clean uh, record to go into politics. Um, or we get people who are just so narcissistically driven that yeah. they're going to get in there no matter what. And so anyway, I, I just was drawing those parallels in my mind as I was listening to you talk. And it's like, this isn't giving us the best version of our future. Um, and I don't know what the fix is, definitely not in, in this short span of time, but I, I'm hoping that it causes people to stop and reflect and think about these kinds of things and how reactionary 
we are right now towards police, towards our uh, people that are trying to, you know, come up in and be public servants and, and serve their communities in the political realm um, and firearms owners. I mean, we are being vilified all over the place, every possible way you can uh, being undermined. And this is not the best path for our, our nation. No, I agree. And, and kind of piggybacking off of what you were saying about the social media. And so what scares me is, you know, if you look at the Kevin Hart, look at the Kevin Hart situation in Twitter. So they were going back and it was happening every couple of years. They were going back to like 2011 being offended by a tweet, whether you agree with the tweet or not, you know, that's, that's your business, but, uh, it doesn't but matter it would, if we agree it, or not, right? That's free it, speech. We don't would, have to agree. But it, but it would come up every couple of years and he kept having to apologize for it. And, and recently it came up again. He was like, look, I've already apologized about this. Like I cannot apologize anymore. People, people just kept going back, finding old tweets and were getting reoffended. And so I think, man, I've had social media. I've had an Instagram for this many years or, or Facebook. I may have put something unknowingly now that at this point, everything's so PC. Maybe somebody's offended. Maybe they're not. And then I get crucified over something I said in 2009 and my career's over. And I guess that's the, that's the part that, 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 that is a little unnerving. Mm-hmm. And I think it sets a, it sets a, like a, like I mentioned earlier, a very dangerous precedent. Mm-hmm. It's almost like you should have a statute of limitations on what you said on social media. But, and I talk about it in the book is we're in a day and age now, once you put it out there, once you tweet it, put it, you better be willing to own it because these escapades of you in college and, you know, doing whatever on spring break, you're posting it on your Facebook. Well, in 20 years, whenever you're running for office or you're trying to, you know, get a job here and they're seeing it, you know, it is what it is. But, and that's one thing that my generation and the younger generations now, we're going to have to deal with forever. Mm-hmm. And the older generations didn't have to deal with that. Oh, and I yeah. laugh, I laugh about it because I'm thinking, you know, how many, you know, mullets flowing in the wind and a firebird from the 81 would have been on social media who, you know, and these people are, you know, chiefs and sheriffs and, and politicians. Now, how many of, of their transgressions as they, whenever they were younger would be, you know, what, what would they be embarrassed about? And so it's hard to really, so that's what kind of gets on my nerves a little bit whenever some of the, the previous generations start pointing fingers Mm -hmm. and saying how immature we are and this and that. And I'm just thinking, you know, at 17, 18, you probably made some bad decisions too, mm-hmm. you know, and you would have probably have posted them on social media if that was a thing back then. And so, and even, you know what, even for parenting, you know, the older generations come from where they could kind of, they could kind of hide their kids from certain things, mm-hmm. but now no way. No so way. now parents are going to be forced to teach their kids how to look at things through a, a lens of reason. Instead of because so many people get their 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 news and education and information through these like fake memes and all this BS and it's like you got to decipher stuff to figure out what the truth is mm-hmm. and I think that's one of the challenges of the, the generations coming up is going to have is being able to decipher through that and look at things with way more reason than we ever had to deal with growing up. If does that make sense? Oh, hundred percent makes sense. Um, you know, I'm 52. So 
the internet uh, was born during my lifetime. So I can remember a time when, you know, if there was photographic evidence of something, it's a matter of, you know, tearing a picture in half and getting rid of the negative or something like that. Right. I happen to be a major goody two shoes in high school. So there's none <laughs> for me, but um, had there been, I, I, there still would have been like a concern, but, but much lower level. Now that something is, I mean, the minute you hit post, that's it. It's everywhere. That's it. All right, and right. you know, it can be so even misconstrued. Like, Somebody recently lost their job because I think they were trying to be ironic in some comment that they made and and somebody took it out of context and made it look like he was being anti-Semitic and it's like, you know, and you said we're going to need reason. We're going to need critical thinking in the future. Our, our kids and our grandkids as they're viewing, you know, past behaviors of their parents and their grandparents, stuff like that. Are we even teaching that anymore? how to be, how to, how to learn, how to yeah. think. I think we're being, the younger generation are being just taught what to think rather mm -hmm. than how to come to their own conclusion. And yes. that's a very, very dangerous path. Yes. And I talk about that. I, I just another, another thing in the book too, that I talk about a lot is you got to be mentally tough enough to be able to be your own thinker. You know, don't let other people's opinions form your own. Be able to take it in, digest it, and then come up with your own conclusion. Because mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of times, especially now with so much information being being thrown at us, we just regurgitate so much stuff. You know, I will sit down with some conservative friends and start listening to the conversation. And I'm like, Ben Shapiro just said that. <laughs> like, that verbatim. Like, that's yeah. not your thought. You know right. what I mean? Yeah. And so, you know, there's a difference between, you know, plagiarism and influence. <laughs> And so, but I, and I hear it all the time. And so, yeah, it's just, because it, it it's on both sides. It it's, is. You know, and, it's hard, and it's hard not to, you know, it's just like hard. going back to Shapiro, he's a brilliant dude. And mm -hmm. he says some, he says a lot of things that make a lot of sense. You think, man, that's, the way he words it is like, man, that really, that really makes sense. So then you want to, you know, you want to steal it and use it too. But uh, so it's hard not to sometimes, but, but yeah, I think that, that's certainly going to be a new challenge for parents moving forward uh, and, and dealing with these teenagers that are seeing these false narratives and they make it so, they make it so easy to jump on board whenever it's like, you know, we gotta, we gotta get rid of police brutality. Like, well, yeah, obviously nobody likes, police don't like police brutality. Like obviously, yeah, we, nobody wants that, mm -hmm. but, but you gotta be able to get into it a little more to see, how what the rate of police brutality really is to see how significant of a problem that it is, and, and you know, just like with the, the gun. There, there we go with the gun thing parallel abs again. Absolutely, and the, like the red red flag gun laws. Like they'll say, hey, we don't need you know we don't need these people with with mental health issues and violent tendencies having guns. Well, yeah, I think a lot of people would just agree, you know, agree on that. Like you know, I don't want this guy who who is you know killing squirrels as a child and now all of a sudden he's wanting to do a mass shooting. Yeah. He doesn't need, he doesn't need, uh, uh, you know, an arsenal of guns. I think, you know, that's now, unless he was hunting and eating those squirrels, which I know some well, people do. True, I true personally that. haven't, but true, true that, that is true. I have a lot of hunting friends. I, I, that, that's the good clarification. There is a purpose for a lot of hunting and, uh, that's a whole other.
Adam froze. We but, um, but, no, but that's true. But I think, oh, sorry. And, uh, but instead, people just take that on its surface and they don't dive down into it to figure out, well, there's lots of ways to abuse this. There's, right. you know, that's going to affect all innocent people that they're going to take away my means to protect myself and my family. And so it's just figuring out how to make people dig deeper into issues mm -hmm. instead of taking just what's on the surface and what's easy to, to, to spit out is, is going to be a challenge, not only now, but just moving forward because mm -hmm. it's, it's easy. People, people take the easiest path. So it's easy just to say, you know, to spew off something without really thinking about the logic behind it. Mm -hmm. if, that, if that makes sense. Oh, 100% sense. Um, there are several more things I do want to talk with you about, but we are sure. about at our hour. So I'll quit, I'll wanna... quit rambling on. You can, you, can, yeah. you can edit all this out if you want to. It's no, okay. not at all. I'm <laughs> loving the conversation, and uh, we'll just have to have you back on again and talk Anytime. about yeah. the things that we, we had to skip over. But um, I definitely wanted to touch on this last thing before we start wrapping up. Um, you had said leadership should come from a place of servitude, not authority. And yeah. that, when you talk about, you know, you have to kind of stop and think about the layers in something or the, the ramifications of, of a phrase or a word, that right there is, that's a whole meal. So can you yeah. kind of break some of that down for us? Absolutely. Uh so I think a lot of people, especially in the police world and anywhere really with any kind of rank, they see that rank as levels of success in, in, a, in a lot of ways. And people will go for these positions for more, more ego driven, narcissistic type tendencies that maybe they will a, through a lens of, I have a, I have a, bigger platform to help more people. Mm -hmm. I think that because I've seen, and I've seen so many, so many people in leadership positions that they waited until they were in that position of authority to become a leader. But mm -hmm. if you start walking the walk beforehand mm -hmm. and you're, 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 you're going through your day-to-day -day stuff, looking at yourself as that leader already, because once you put on a, a uniform and a badge, you're, you're a leader whether it's in, if you're a patrolman in the community, whenever you get to a scene, you're the person, right? And so before you're ever given that authority, mm -hmm. if you lead from a place of servitude where mm -hmm. you are coming to work and you, you care more about helping that person get to a position that they want to get to before you want to put yourself in a position that has so much, so much more influence on that individual than just having the authority over that individual because I've had people without rank ask me to do something, consider it done. Mm -hmm. I've had people with authority tell me to do something, but it's coming from a place of authority and not a place of why well, I know this person wants what's best for me. Yeah. And, and so I, tr I think about that and I try to, I try to mimic, mimic that in my own life because it all really comes down to influence. Mm -hmm. If in, if you if you if you're coming from a place of servitude where hey I want what's I, I honestly want what's best for Cheryl I want her to tell me what her goals are and I'm gonna do my best as her supervisor friend leader to help her achieve those goals mm -hmm. then it's gonna have much more influence on you 
mm-hmm. you moving forward and how you respond to stuff later on, instead of me coming to you as authority thinking, you know, how can Cheryl help me get to another position of power? What can I do to make myself look good mm-hmm. and into a position of power? And now I'm just going to tell her what to go do that, that I think will help me achieve that goal. Mm-hmm. And I think whenever you, when you, when you start really stepping back and looking at it through that, through that, Hey, I'm here to help people. I'm here to, to serve everybody and really a chief of police at any size department. That should be the biggest server of everybody. Mm-hmm. He should be they're the face of the agency, but he should be there for his people. Mm-hmm. And when you get these leaders that are just there because they want to be that face, mm-hmm. they want to be narcissistic. They just like having that authority and they're there for the wrong reasons. You see Mm -hmm. a a lot of leadership flaws and you Mm -hmm. see a lot of, you see a lot of low morale police departments. Mm -hmm. So true. And you know, one of the things is when, when you approach any job you do in an other focused is what you're talking about, right? What can I do to help Adam? Well, now you trust me more. So when I give you a command or I give you a suggestion, you trust that it is what's good for Adam rather than where it's that, that self-focus, that authoritative, when I tell Adam to do something, it's uh, in order to make me look better or help sure. my career possibly, right? Or right. it's something I just didn't want to do. So I'm going to, you know, poop rolls downhill. I'm going to let it roll down on out. Absolutely. It does. <laughs> and so it, you know, it's, it's all about influence. You know, yeah. I'll, I'll, I think back at, at supervisors I've had and I think, man, how would they handle this? What would they do? And I think about some sort about some supervisors and I'm just thinking, I will never, ever be like that person. They yeah. were just there for the wrong reasons. Mm-hmm. They didn't give a dang about me or anybody else. They were just there for them. And uh, yeah, it's just, yeah. A, it's just a bad place to be in. And then uh, for the younger folks who maybe hear the word service, right? Mm-hmm. Or use the word servitude, maybe that's the word that goes in their ear. But what it sounds like in their mind is subservient. And mm-hmm. then they bristle against that. Can you try to make a distinction between those two things? Uh-huh. You know, I don't, we're not going to be everybody's stepping stone, but I really believe that because we, we do work, we work for the people, mm-hmm. whether people want to say, you know, people tell us all the time, I pay your paycheck and we're just kind of roll our eyes. But in reality, they do, they, like, do. And they do pay. And so, and you know, the police are, we are the purveyors of truth and justice. We're the good guys. If you're not willing to, if you're not willing to take on that thick skin and understand that we're here, we're here for the citizens of the community that we, that we, that we serve and work for. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes that's hard for people to take in, mm-hmm. but until you start realizing that you're, you're going to have a harder time than you normally would. You know, we are the criminal justice system is, is that, is that pillar of society that upholds the constitution. Mm-hmm. Like without us, it's going to be, it's, we're going to have a hard time at, at keeping uh, America, America and having a society. And so mm-hmm. you really, you, and, and when you take a step back and you realize the, the kind of the, 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 the importance of that. Mm-hmm. And 
and that people's lives and, and their opinions about our job depend on kind of how you, their interaction with you, you know, it's, it, it's, it's more meaningful now than it has ever been because if somebody has a, a, a bad interaction with a cop, mm-hmm. it kind of solidifies all that negativity they hear on social media and in the news. And that's it. Yeah. That's just how cops are. And those levels of influence, they're going to tell somebody, tell somebody, and you know, now you've got just more negativity. And so, mm-hmm. so having that, that servanthood, you know, being customer service friendly, when you, there's times that you got to go hands on and handle business. You know, sure. that's part of it. Sure. But for the most part, you got to have, you got to have that mindset that we're here for the people and that we, we, we are, they do pay our, they do pay our salary mm-hmm. and, and, and come from a place of servanthood instead of a place of, you know, I just want to drive fast cars and shoot guns. <laughs> yeah. Which, yeah. uh, both of those things are really, uh, very fun. Bitty, you know? They're fun, but they're a teeny itty bitty part of what anybody yes. who wears a uniform and a badge actually ends up getting to do. But exactly. Again, I just, I, I can't keep stop from, um, drawing those parallels to when I hear you talk about how people are viewing police and how they're viewing firearms owners. Um, that there's a lot of similarities. And so yes. even people listening that are kind of like, well, the cops are too big for the britches and they, they have all this military equipment and you know, whatever all they might be thinking, it's like, but do you want, do you, as a firearms owner or a two way advocate, do you want to be slathered with, you know, what a tiny fraction of people do incorrectly with our firearms no you don't so keep it in perspective when you're trying to slather all people in law enforcement with the examples of you know sometimes like you're saying about ferguson sometimes narratives that have been proven not by me not by adam but by the investigators uh you know after the the horse left the barn but have been proven that that's not even true and yet you're still slathering law enforcement with that big brush rather than Mm -hmm. seeing them as individuals who are trying to you know really serve their community with the skills that they have um and that that happens to be their skill set that drove them to that um to that career just don't make it harder on ourselves and each right. other yeah. really, I guess is kind of the, the wrap up for that. Sure. But Adam, thank you so much for all the time you've spent with us today. I am definitely going to have you back on cause I've got some, some really interesting things I want to dive into with you in the, in the future. Um, I'd love to. Oh, absolutely. Thank I'm sorry. You. Sorry if I rambled too much. You did not. You did not. <laughs> it's just, I, I uh, there was just way too many cool things to talk about. So um, I'm sitting here trying to cherry pick on my, my list here and it's like, but that one's so good. I, I don't want to get off the call without doing that one. Um, but just as we uh, go out today, please tell folks how they can follow you, the work that you do, how they can get your book, how they can sure. stay connected with you. So the book is on Amazon uh, in all formats, be it uh, ebook, audible, uh, if you want to hear my voice, you know, for, for a few hours, uh, paperback and hardback, I think target and Walmart are carrying the paperbacks. 
you can find a link to all that stuff on my website, uh, adamlwilson.com. My Instagram handle is adamwilson02. I'm on Facebook, LinkedIn. Um, I have an app out there. Um, it's the Sergeant Exam app. You can find that in the uh, on, for Android and on, on Apple in the iTunes store. And, uh, yeah, and just follow my YouTube channel, uh, Tip of the Spear with Adam Wilson. Brand new channel and still kind of figuring out the direction that we're wanting to go, but uh, having a lot of fun with that. Not writing as much because I'm, I've been enjoying the, the conversation more. And so, but yeah, so that's, that's, that's the, that's my, that's my things. Amazon, adamlwilson.com, social media links, and then uh, the tip of the spear with Adam Wilson. Well, I highly recommend tip of the spear on YouTube because uh, I got to be a guest of Adam's. This is true. <laughs> so that was a fun conversation. Really. We, we talk about somebody that a guest that rambles. I, you, Probably were wishing you had a, a zapper no, somehow. To I thought you were. I thought you were great. Wrap it up already. <laughs> oh, anyway, thank you again so much for everything. Such um, such a cool conversation, an interesting conversation today about resourcefulness and resilience, and you know, not letting our past determine our future. And I just really appreciate you, and and thank you for your service. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. All right, well, stick around. There's always lots more coming up on Gun Freedom Radio.